So I know that at some point in your life, you've been disappointed with someone, uh, maybe a friend, maybe a family member, uh, somebody you were close to, somebody you loved, and, and they just let you down. Uh, they did something, they said something, uh, they didn't do something, they didn't say something, and so you were just disappointed with them. Um, I know that there are times that you've been disappointed with yourself, uh, but here's the question uh, that I really wanna ask. Has there ever been a time in your life when you've been disappointed with God? Has there ever been a time, ever been a season, a segment of your life where you, you just, if you were just really honest about it, you would say, you know what, I, I'm, just, I'm just, I was, I am disappointed with God. Has there ever been a time in your life where you felt abandoned by God? Has there ever been a time when you felt forgotten by God? Has there ever been a time in your life when you were facing something, you were going through something, and it just felt like God didn't care? When you looked at your life and you looked inside and your thoughts and your feelings, it, it just seemed like it just felt like God didn't care. And you, you were left with just a couple of scenarios and either one of them were really attractive at all. It was either God is powerless to change things. That, that's, one, that's one option. But on the other hand, it, it may be that God's so heartless that he just won't change things. And, and you didn't want to think about that for too long because that just took you to an even darker place. And then you looked around because you wanted to stop thinking about it, but when you looked around, you just got angry and you got confused because you saw poverty and you saw injustice and oppression and abuse and you saw all of this stuff going on in the world and you thought to yourself on one level or another, I wouldn't do it that way if I were God. I wouldn't let that happen if, if I were God. I would do it different if I were in charge. But, but here's the bigger question. Have you ever found your faith in conflict with your feelings? Because that's what all of that is really all about. Have you ever found yourself in a place where your faith is in conflict with your feelings? What you said you believe, what you would have signed down on a piece of paper and put your initials beside of it to say, this is what I believe. These are statements of what I believe to be true about God, of what I believe to be true about the world where I live, to be true about me. But yet what you say you believe what you would write down that you believe, you don't feel it. What you say you believe is in some way disconnected and divorced from how you feel emotionally. And what you feel whispers back to you that perhaps what you believe may not be what's real. Your faith says that God is good, but, but everything around you feels bad. Your faith says that God is present, right? You've heard that all your life, God is present. He'll never leave you, never, never forsake you. And, it, and if you were forced to say something, you would say, yeah, I believe it. My faith says that God is present, but you feel like God is absent. You would say, I believe God knows and I believe that God cares about my situation, but it doesn't feel that way at all. You can't feel any sense that God knows and you can't feel that God cares. You would say, hey, I believe that God is for me, but everything inside feels as though everything is against you. You would say, yeah, my faith says God loves me, but you know, I, I don't feel it. I don't feel loved. I, I believe God has forgiven me, but I, I don't feel forgiven. No matter what I do, I just don't feel forgiven. My faith and my feelings, sometimes they run in the same direction, but oftentimes my faith and my feelings seem to be in conflict. They seem to be in battle with each other. And it's when we get to that place that we're really left with some questions, questions like this, why has God? You ever asked that question before? Why? Why is God? Why has God allowed this? 
why didn't God, why has God brought this person? Why did God let that person? Why has God? And, and then why has God begins to be when will God? Because, you know, we're Christian and we're people of faith and we believe, you know, that prayer is going to work and, and we believe that God's going to intervene and we believe that God's going to change it and we believe that God's going to make it better. And so we start asking the question, when will God, when will God change this? When will God get involved? When will God intervene? And then some more time goes by and when will God becomes, why hasn't God? Why hasn't God answered my prayer? I, I mean, I went back to church, I got baptized, I, I've been given some money, I, I joined a group, I've been reading my Bible, I've been trying to do everything right. Why hasn't God done anything yet? Why, why hasn't God, I've been praying in Jesus' name, I don't really, really know what that means, I, I saw it on television, I heard the preacher say it, so I've just been praying in Jesus' name, I've been asking God to do all this stuff. Why hasn't God done anything yet? Is it me? Do, do I not have enough faith? Am I not, am I not doing something hard enough? Why hasn't God? And then why hasn't God eventually becomes, where is God? Where is God in all this? In the betrayal, in the heartbreak, in the financial difficulty, in the middle of the cancer, in the middle of whatever it is you're in the middle of, where is God? Is he real? Or have we all bought into some sophisticated tall tale? Has faith become a psychological crutch for us to make us feel good about when life is difficult? And all of that gets us to the lowest of lows where we begin to ask the question, what good is God? What good is God? What good is God? You did the right thing. You got involved. You rededicated your life. You got baptized. You, you started giving. You started serving. You started doing all the, the things that they said that were the right things to do. You started doing the right things, but everything went wrong. What good is God? You cleaned up your life, you said no to some things, you said yes to some things, you got away from some certain people, but nothing changed, nothing got better. What good is God? For you, somebody got sick, somebody you loved, somebody you cared about, somebody got diagnosed with cancer, somebody got diagnosed with a disease and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you cried and you cried and you cried and you begged God and you did everything the Bible said to do and you did everything the Christians told you to do, but in the end, they died. What good is God? Something happened to somebody you loved and, and boy, you, you really wanted God to, to do a miracle, but nothing happened. What good is God? Somebody left, somebody turned their back on you. Foreclosure came. What good is God? You tried to do everything right. You came most Sundays. You even started singing the songs. What good is God? All the while you're looking at all your friends who are far from God and don't give a rip about God and everything's going good for them. It's like, what good is this? What good is God? And then you end up questioning two things. You end up questioning God's existence on one hand or God's goodness on the other. And neither one of those are good to think about. In that dark time, in that quiet place, when you start thinking about, okay, does God exist? And if God exists, is he good? But he doesn't feel good. So if God does exist, he's not good. And if he does in turn end up being a good God, then it's not this God that I'm experiencing. And so we just, we just don't even know which way to turn and we end up with like, what good is God? And I, I'm telling you as a person who's been there and done that and I, I've checked into that club many times, 
There's no place lower, there's no place darker, and there's no place tougher than to be at the place where you're wrestling with the question, what good is God? I think this is where ancient Israel was in the years leading up to the end of the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, we read about how Israel is God's chosen people. But yet they look at, their self, look, look at themselves, they look at their situation, they look at their circumstances, they look at their own history and they're like, God's chosen people? Well, what good is it to be God's chosen people? Do you know our story? Do you know our suffering? Do you know our plight? Do you know how many of our countrymen have been mowed down in acts of war and oppression? Do you know how many times we've been slaves to different empires? Are you kidding me? We're God's chosen people? Well, what good is that? What good is God? If we're his chosen people, we don't have anything to show for it. Apple of his eye. Apple, are you kidding me? We're the apple of his eye. This is what it means to be the apple of God's eye, is to be beaten, you know, to be beaten, to be treated like this over and over again. I think this is what Israel was wrestling with as the Old Testament came to an end. Matter of fact, they felt this way for centuries leading up to the end of the Old Testament. Even into the seventh century, 700 years before we get to the New Testament, they're already feeling this way. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, as he was preaching to the people, he gives us some insight to how the people of God felt in those days. He says, but Zion said, or Israel said, the Lord has forsaken me. That's how the people of God felt. They felt forsaken. They, they felt forgotten. Where is God? Why hasn't God? What good is God? The Lord has forgotten me. And then God asks a rhetorical question. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? And then, of course, you know, you stop and think about that for a moment. It's like, well, yeah. I mean, you scroll through Facebook, you, you listen to news, you hear about stories in our own community about how a mother can treat a child or how a father can treat a little helpless child. And it's like, yeah, 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 a mother would. A mother would forget. We see it all the time. We mistreat unborn babies in this country. We mistreat born babies in this country. Yeah, God, we see this done all the time. Parents, they act in despicable ways all the time. And God was like, yeah, I agree. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. The people felt as though they were forgotten and forsaken, but God said, I will not forget you because I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. You are a part of me. You are my sons and my daughters. And, and here's the message that God was giving ancient Israel. And I think maybe for some of you, it's the message that God is sending to you. Don't allow your faith to become the casualty of your feelings. Don't allow your faith to become the casualty of your feelings. Don't allow your faith to become the casualty of your circumstances. Because circumstances can turn your convictions into questions and doubts. Circumstances can change what once upon a time was a conviction. Something that you would have wrote your name down beside of. Hey, I absolutely believe this. This is a conviction in my heart. And all of a sudden it becomes a question and then it becomes a doubt. One example being John the baptizer. John the baptizer was the cousin of Jesus. Remember, he looks up one day, sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Later on, John gets arrested and put in prison. Guess who didn't come to see him while he was in prison? His cousin, Jesus. And so while John is in a dark place and while he is in a silent place, and when Jesus doesn't come to see him, he begins to question his convictions. He begins to doubt what he once upon a time believed. And so he sends some friends of his to go ask Jesus this question. Are you the one? Are you really the one or should I look for another? Because that's what a dark place will do. 
That's what a silent place will do. When your circumstances turn against you, when your feelings are not running in the same direction as your faith, that's what can happen to you and that's what can happen to me. The things once upon a time we said we believed in the dark, we begin to question. What we started believing in the light, we begin to doubt in the darkness. You see, faith isn't based on feelings and that's a terrible idea. You know, we grew up, uh, many of us grew up in church. I grew up in church. And in the 20 and 21st century, the idea of church was we're going to go to church and feel something. We're going to go to church and feel something. I'm going to go get my blessing. All right, I'm going to go get my blessing this morning. And I'm going to go feel something. And, and then when you left and you didn't feel something, something must have been wrong. Something was wrong with the preacher. Something was wrong with the music. Something was wrong with everybody else. Something may have been wrong with me. And, and so we just, we always wanted just a feeling-based faith. But the problem is for every time you may feel something, there's gonna be many, many, many more times you don't feel anything. And you can't base your faith on how you feel. And that means you can't base your faith on your circumstances, how good things are or how bad things are. That's not how faith works. Faith is based on evidence. Because here's what faith believes. Faith believes that God exists and he keeps his promises. That's what the Old Testament is trying to convince us of. That's what the Old Testament is making a case for. The Old Testament is pointing us to the reality of God and the faithfulness of God. The reality of God and the faithfulness of God. God exists and he keeps his promises. And when God makes promises, those promises become our hope when we place our faith in the God who makes the promise. So that means we begin, despite the circumstance, despite how we feel, our faith gives us hope that we're able to see light beyond the darkness. We're able to see life on the other side of death. We're able to see a future beyond what is present, and we're even able to see beauty beyond the ashes. That's how hope works, and that's what the Old Testament is all about. It's trying to convince you and to convince me that God exists in the beginning, Genesis 1 verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And from that point on, it is the picture of a God who exists and a God who keeps his promises. So, as we finish up the Old Testament, we find that as the Old Testament ends, we find a people struggling to keep hold of hope. That was Israel. Now, we've been talking about in this series, if you're a guest of ours, we're talking about how the story of the Bible helps us to make sense of all the other stories in the Bible. There's two sections to the Bible. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as we have said many times, the only reason that Christians care about the Old Testament is because of what happened in the New Testament. But in the 39 books of the Old Testament, there's many different parts. And within those different parts, there's all kinds of different stories. But all of those stories are trying to tell one overarching story. And it is the story of how God promised Abraham that one day his family would become a nation that would become a kingdom. And they would be God's people, his chosen people through whom he would save the world. And that's exactly what we find happening from Genesis 12 on. The family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob became the kingdom of Israel. They had become a nation, just like God said, and they did become a kingdom, just like God said. But in less than 500 years, the kingdom of Israel, it ended from 1050 BC to 586 BC. That was as long as the kingdom of Israel lasted. And this is where, where we left off last week. Because in 586 BC, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, came to town, invaded the city, tore down the walls, tore down the temple, plundered the city, left thousands dead. Everything was in smoke and ruins. It was terrible. People like Jeremiah was left for dead in the streets. People like Ezekiel and Daniel were taken off as captives of war back to Babylon. 
And at that particular time, nothing had felt more helpless for Israel than that moment. Nothing had ever felt more dark than that moment for Israel. They felt like they had died as a nation. The promise that God made to Abraham that one day somehow they were going to bless the world, that all just seemed like it was so far away and it just seemed like an impossibility. But when they went off into captivity, the prophet said, you're going to come back at the end of 70 years. So there's hope. No matter how it feels, there's hope. And so what happens is in history, Babylon falls to Persia. Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Magnificent. And, and I know sometimes some of you can't stand that I bring this history stuff in, but, but I, I really believe with all of my heart if, if we could just understand that what we read in the Old Testament is running side by side with world history. And what you were taught in world history class and what you were taught in other history classes throughout your life in school, I'm telling you, it brings the scriptures alive because God is not outside of all of this. God is inside all of this. And he's working among the kings and the kingdoms of this world to bring about a king and a kingdom that is not of this world. And so Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Great conquers Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian empire in 539 BC. He was a different type of leader, a different type of king. He was a bit more benevolent. Uh, he gave birth to the largest empire that the world had ever set eyes on up until that particular point. But the thing that Cyrus did different than world leaders before him, he decided to let the captives go back home. He decided to let all these people that Babylon had captured and brought back to Babylon, he decided to let them go back home because he was a real passionate guy about local customs and religions. And so he let the Jewish people go back home. The following year in 538, the first of three waves of Jewish exiles went back to Israel. Zerubbabel led the first one, and they're going to go back and rebuild the temple. Eighty years later, Ezra the scribe. There's a whole book about Ezra. There's a whole couple of little prophet books about Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the temple. Eighty years later, Ezra goes back and leads a revival. And then in 444 BC, Nehemiah, there's another book in the Old Testament all about this. He goes back and rebuilds the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And when they go back for a people who've been beat up on for centuries, for, for people who feel like all hell has been breaking loose in their life for centuries, for people who feel like one dark thing has been happening to them one lifetime after another, momentum finally seems to be in the air. Things may seem to be finally turning around and there seems to be a little bit of hope and expectation in the air. Maybe, just maybe, Israel was on the verge of becoming a global presence once again. Maybe, just maybe, they were on the verge of God fulfilling his promise that they as a nation would in some way bless the world. Maybe they were on the verge of God fulfilling his promise to David that a king was on his way who would rule over a kingdom that would never end. And so people were excited. The temple was rebuilt. The economy was growing stronger. The walls around the city rebuilt and fortified. But then you know what happened next? Of course you do because it's happened to so many of us. The excitement wore off. Things weren't as glittery as what they really seemed because as they looked around, they were reminded what their circumstances really were. They were still under the thumb of a world empire. No longer the Babylonians, but now it's the Persians. They are not their own people. They are not free. They do not have a kingdom. They are virtually slaves to whatever the Persians want them to do. And so as the final book of the Old Testament, the very final book, the 39th book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, when Malachi shows up as a prophet, the people are back in the land. 
but they're losing hope, they're losing faith, their circumstances, their feelings, it's choking faith from them. And so here's a little insight to how the people were thinking. This is what Malachi says. I have loved you, says the Lord. But then the people, this is how the people of Israel thought. But how have you loved us? How have you loved us? <laughs> God, you say you love us, but do you know what's going on? God, you, you say you love us, but God, let's just talk about the last 100 years. Let's talk about the fact that our temple got destroyed. Let's talk about the fact that our brothers and sisters and cousins and countrymen lay dead in the streets. But let's talk about your temple, God, and let's talk about how they took all the sacred artifacts out. Let's talk about how they broke down the walls. Let's talk about the smoke and the ruins, and let's talk about how that's happened time and time and time again. This is how you love us. This is you loving us. And it was almost laughable. Their circumstances, they looked around the way that they felt. They didn't feel loved. Their circumstances certainly didn't lead them to believe that God loved them. Their faith was becoming a casualty of their circumstances and their feelings. And my question is, is it possible that that may be happening to some of you? That you're in the middle of whatever it is that you're in the middle of. It's a dark place. It's a silent place. God doesn't seem to be nowhere close to what you're going through. You've prayed and there's crickets. You've prayed and nothing's happened. You're looking for God, but you can't see God. You're listening for God and you can't hear God. And I wonder if some of you, your circumstances and your feelings are choking out your faith. Maybe that's why the scripture says we're to walk by faith and not by sight. That sometimes what we can see it can lie to us. It can deceive us. Sometimes what we can hear can deceive us and lie to us. Sometimes what we can touch and what we can experience can lie to us and de deceive us. So God is telling them, don't allow your feelings to be the barometer for your faith. If things are going good, your faith is strong. If things are going bad, your faith, your faith is weak. Don't be that type of person. You know what faith is? Faith is believing that God is who he says he is and God's gonna do what he says he's going to do despite the circumstances. But they had gotten to a place where they, they were just asking, what good is God? They were offering God crippled sacrifices. They were supposed to bring God their best, but they were bringing God lambs that were blind and lambs that were crippled and lambs that were spotted. And Malachi says, you're not giving God your best and no wonder. They didn't think that obeying God made any difference. And when you don't think that obeying God makes any difference, you don't think that disobeying God makes any difference. And so they just got into a way of playing religion. We're going to do what we can do just to cover our bases, keep our fire insurance in our back pocket just in case. And we're going to do as little as possible. Because look what it's got us anyway. We've been the punching bag of nations for centuries. And we're God's people. We're the apple of his eye. We're the chosen seed of Abraham. Are you kidding me? God, you love us? So they're in a bad place. And then in the midst of all of this, God gives them a promise. God makes a prophecy. And it seems so impossible. And knowing the context of what is going on and how the people feel, it just, it, it's almost funny. Here's what God says to them. My name will be great among the nations. 
My name will be great among the nations. Not just one nation, the nation of Israel, but my name in some ways is going to be great among all the nations of the world. Now just think about that. Listen to this. From where the sun rises to where it sets. In other words, everywhere. I'm going to make my name great everywhere. In every place that incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. In other words, everywhere people worship, I will be worshiped. My name will be worshiped because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. And you know what people were thinking? <laughs> no, it won't. No, it won't. God, your name's a joke. God, your name's a joke. You're the butt of every nation's joke. We are the butt of every nation's joke. We have been their punching bag. They have steamrolled us generation after generation after generation. Our forefathers spent 400 years in Egypt. The Assyrians took away our families in the north. And then it was the Babylonians. And now it's the Persians. God, your name's not going to be great. Your name's going to be a joke. It already is. And that was the sentiment of the people. Because that's how they felt. And that's how their circumstance looked. And so as the Old Testament ends, the Old Testament ends on a note of deep disappointment unfulfilled longings with the faint hope of better days ahead. And then over the next 400 years, there's 400 years between your Old Testament and the New Testament. It's often referred to as the 400 years of silence because for 400 years we have no record of God saying anything. And over those 400 years, things don't get better for Israel. Matter of fact, they get worse. They get worse. Persia is going to be swallowed up under the greatest empire and emperor the world had ever known. Young strapping Alexander from Greece, who had sat at the feet of Aristotle, who had sat at the feet of Plato, who had sat at the feet of Socrates. And now this general is taking over the world with this vision of unifying the world with a common language and with common customs. Seven years after Alexander dethrones Persia as the mighty world empire, he dies. His empire spread among four generals. And for the next couple hundred years in Israel, Israel, the power changes hands 25 different times. They're a punching bag. They're a football. They're just passed back and forth. And it goes from worse to worser. And I know it's not a word. All right. But there's only one way to say it. It went from worse to worser. Somewhere around the year 168, there was a Syrian king, one of those 25 that that changed hands, you know, in the power struggles in Palestine. Around 168, there was a Syrian king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and most historians believe that he was a madman, that he was literally insane, because he took on the name Epiphanes, and you've heard the term Epiphany, but he took on the term Epiphanes because he believed that he was God manifest in the flesh. And unlike other kings who ruled over the Jews, he despised the Jews. He despised their religion, he despised their customs, he despised their scriptures. And so he did everything that he could to wipe out the Jewish people. He did everything he could to break their spirit. And so somewhere around 168 BC, he, he does the only thing he knows to break their spirit once and for all. He takes a pig and he walks into the Jewish temple and on Yahweh's altar, he lays a pig, which in the Jewish way of thinking was the most unclean animal that you could possibly touch. He places that unclean animal on Yahweh's altar and he sacrifices it as a sacrifice to Zeus. And it had never gotten so dark. 
The promises of God had never seemed so far away. God, you're going to make your name great. God, Zeus just got worshipped in your temple. How is that you making your name great? And then things go from dark to darker. In 63 BC, a friend of Julius Caesar, matter of fact, a member of his family, one of the great Roman generals, Pompey, he swings down from Galilee and swings into Jerusalem and he invades the city of Jerusalem. He kills 12,000, more blood, more death, more violence. 12,000 Jewish people lay dead in the streets of Jerusalem. He rides his horse up the southern temple steps. He goes into the temple. He dismounts his horse. He walks up to the curtain of the holiest of holies. That place that Jewish people had been told all of their life, that's where the presence of God is. If you walk in there, God will kill you. Nobody can stand in his presence. And they'd heard that all of their life. He dismantles his horse. He walks in behind the curtain. He looks around and he comes out and he laughs and he says, there's nobody, there's nobody back there. And for many, that was the death knell on their faith. Because everything they'd ever been told that was true now seemed to be the furthest thing from what was true. And in those days, many people started walking away from faith. They just didn't feel it anymore. And their circumstances told them it wasn't true anyway. So as the New Testament opens, it's been 400 years since anybody has heard from God. It's been 500 years since there has been a miracle. There's been 800 years between the last cluster of miracles dating back all the way to Elisha. And there's been 500 years since a descendant of David's family has sat upon the throne. And in the midst of all of this darkness, in the midst of all of this sadness, sadness and in the midst of all of this silence, in the midst of all of this question, what good is God? Where has God been? The Apostle Paul gives us the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament and says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. That when everything was exactly the way that God wanted it, that God throughout history had been maneuvering and working in the lives of kings and kingdoms to introduce a king and kingdom, not of this world. When God got everything exactly the way he wanted, because throughout world history, in every shadow of every throne room of every monarch, God was there. In the shadow of every empire that rose and fell, God was there. And God was maneuvering and God was moving the pieces of the puzzle together. So at the set time, he could send his son into the world just as he had promised. And so as the first page of our English New Testament opens, it's the book of Matthew. Matthew, who was a former tax collector, who had been disbarred from his temple, who had been excommunicated from his faith. In those 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jewish religion, it changed dramatically. They began to be politicized and they began to be hypocrisy driven. And so by the time that the New Testament opens up, people like Matthew were not even welcome to worship at the temple. But he had become a follower of Jesus. He'd been a witness of his resurrection. And then he wrote a biography of Jesus' life. And this is how Matthew begins the first page in the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The son of, talk to me, the son of David and the son of Abraham. 
It's almost like Matthew opens up the story and says, listen, there's some things you need to know. That's why Christians care about the Old Testament, because of what happened at the set time. What C.S. Lewis said was the narrowing of history, that after every generation, things were getting closer and closer and closer and closer together until they came to the point of when God sent his son. And as the New Testament opens up, Matthew says, I want to make clear that the story that I'm about to tell you is the story of how God kept his promise. How God kept his promise in 2091 BC when he told Abraham, Abraham, your faith is going to become a nation that's going to become a kingdom and it's going to bless the world. It's the story of how God would keep his promise to David that a king was coming that would ultimately rule over a kingdom that would never end. And then he gives us that boring genealogy. He gives us a whole bunch of people from the Old Testament, a whole bunch of screw-ups as a way of saying, Jesus came for screwed-up people because Jesus came from screwed-up people. Jesus came for some jacked-up people because when you read his family tree, he came from some jacked-up people. And that's how we're introduced to Jesus. But then the part of the story that we almost have to read as we end it all today. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they could come together, she was found to be pregnant with the Holy Spirit. Remember that whole thing? The angel came and said, hey, you're going to conceive a son. And she's like, how? I'm a virgin. Well, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. And and she was just taking it all in. Your son's going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the most high. Matthew goes on and says, but because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, the Mosaic law, and we talked about that, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So why was he going to divorce her quietly? I mean, come on, think about it. He's engaged to be married. I can only imagine it. You know, Mary comes down to his wood shop one day and says, Joseph, you know, I need to tell you something. It's kind of, kind of a big deal. And, you know, okay, Mary, just spit it out. Just tell me. Well, you may want to sit down, but make sure it's one of the good ones you've made. Sit down, all right? <laughs> Honey, I... I'm pregnant. What do you mean? You're, we've not slept. Yeah, no, but don't be worried. Don't, don't worry. I've not had sex with anybody. Okay, Mary, whose baby is it? It's God's. <laughs> well, in that case, when's the shower? <laughs> Can you imagine something like this happening in our culture? How dismissive. I mean, we think Mary was just straight jacket crazy. It's like, Mary, you need a doctor. People haven't changed. People know biology. People know how babies are made. He, he was thinking, I'm going to divorce her. Because she's obviously lying. She's making up a story. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. Joseph, you biological genetic descendant of David. It's almost like the New Testament is trying to pick up where the Old Testament left off. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from from their sins. Joseph, you have no idea what you're on the front side of. Joseph, you're going to marry Mary, and you're going to adopt this son, and you're going to call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. He's going to save them from the penalty of their sin. The penalty of sin, which had been death from the Garden of Eden. 
And death litters the pages of the Old Testament. Wherever there's sin, there's death and there's destruction and there's chaos. It litters the pages of the Old Testament. Joseph, call his name Jesus. He's going to save the people from their sin, from the penalty of their sin, from the power of sin. He's going to do for them, Joseph, what they cannot do for themselves. Joseph, call his name Jesus because he's going to save them from their sin. Joseph, you have no idea, but you're on the front end of a brand new thing. I'm about to begin a brand new covenant. I'm about to make a brand new creation that one day is going to culminate with a new creation, a recreation of heaven and earth where everything that sin made wrong, I am going to remake and make right. Oh, Joseph, call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sin. Luke said it this way. In those days, Caesar Augustus, Octavian, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who defeated Mark Antony in the Battle of Actium, who became the first Roman emperor of Rome, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Serenius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Bethlehem, went up from Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the lineage of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. But I love the way Matthew ends it. Matthew ends it all by saying all of this, all of what? Everything that we've been reading, everything that we've been talking about for 10 weeks, everything from Genesis 1 verse 1 on, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All of this happened so God could keep his promise. His promise in the garden to send a savior. His promise to Abraham that one day one of his descendants would bless the world. His promise to David that one day he would send a king that would never be toppled from his throne. All of this happened so that Isaiah's prophecy that a son was given, a child was born, the government will rest upon his shoulders. All of this happened so that God could keep his promise. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's all just say that together. God with us. What was all of this about? It was about God being with us. It's about God, the creator. That in the beginning, God who created the heavens and the earth, he became one of us. It's about the one who walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve in Eden. He became one of us. It's about the one who spoke from the burning fiery bush to Moses. He became one of us. The author of the story entered into the story to make you and me part of the story. 
and it's personal. It's just not God with us, but it's God with you. And it means that no matter how bad it feels and no matter how bad the circumstances look, you never have to ask, where is God or how does God feel about me? Because God came to be with you. And despite how dark it is and despite how quiet it may be, God exists and he keeps his promises. Listen to the words again. She'll give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Jesus became the dividing line between B.C. and A.D. His life, his death, his resurrection is the only reason we care about the first part of the story. Call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Because in his name, the name of Jesus, there's life. And in his name, the name of Jesus, there's healing. And in the name of Jesus, there's hope. And in the name of Jesus, there's grace. And in the name of Jesus, there's mercy. And in his name, there's love. And in his name, beauty rises up from ashes. And in his name, there's resurrection. And life can come from death. In his name, the tears may last through the night. But in his name, joy is coming in the morning. Through his name, the only name is given whereby men can have an opportunity to be saved. It is his name that is above every name. That one day, at his name, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And here's the best thing of all. Today, on the first day of December, 2019, all over this planet, wherever the sun rises and the sun sets, his name will be worshiped. God kept his promise. He made his name great in all the nations. In every corner of the world, the name of Jesus will be worshiped today, just like God said it would. Call his name Jesus, because he's gonna save the people from their sins. Heavenly Father, Lord, your story is so compelling. And God, in the darkness and in the silence and the despair, and what feels like hopelessness and what feels, God, so painful and so difficult that it's just hard to believe. It's hard to lay hold of faith and it's hard to keep hold of hope. God, remind us that no matter how long it takes, in the end, you will keep all of your promises. That in the name of Jesus, there's always hope that on the other side of whatever it is that terrifies us, there's hope. But more than that, right in the middle of it all, you are with us.